back to the Final Girl on 6th Avenue podcast. My name is Carolyn Smith-Hilmer, and I am 6th Avenue's very own Final Girl. And this week, we are going to be talking about a film from, um, I think I should just say it, it's, it's, it's probably the most controversial director, a film from Lars von Trier. And if you've listened to my show before, you know that I have done an episode, two episodes actually, of another movie of his, um, The House That Jack Built, which I really enjoy. I also really enjoy this film. So this week we're going to be talking about the 2009 Lars von Trier film, Antichrist, which is an IFC film and was um, released at Cannes Film Festival. It is likely one of the most controversial films ever made. And I think when I get into the... um, what the movie is even about, then I'm certain that you'll agree with me. And if you've seen the movie, then I'm really certain that you agree with me. So before we jump into that, as you know, the final girl on sixth Avenue podcast is part of the incredible morbidly beautiful network. Morbidly beautiful is your home for horror. If you love horror in any way, shape or form, then you too are welcome at morbidly beautiful network. You can find my podcast and many others like it as well as insightful film reviews and so much more, head on over to morbidlybeautiful.com to check it all out and show us some love. So 2009 release, Antichrist. Um, This film is consulting our Bible, obviously, IMDb, like we do every week, about a grieving couple retreat to their cabin in the woods, hoping to repair their broken hearts and troubled marriage But nature takes its course, and things go from bad to worse. This is written and directed by Lars von Trier, starring Willem Dafoe, Charlotte Gainsbourg, and Storm Salstrom. As we know the rules of uh, art house horror, our main characters don't have names. So Charlotte Gainsbourg plays she, and Willem Dafoe plays he. The only person in this movie with a name is their son, Nick, played by Storm Salstrom. And he's not in the movie for very long. So let's jump into some excitement, shall we? This film is divided up into chapters, much like um, all of Lars von Trier's movies, really. And, um, or just sections or stories, if you will. This is the first installment of the Depression Trilogy, followed by Melancholia and Nymphomaniac, which are also incredible movies, by the way. Um, I think of the Depression series, actually, Melancholia is my favorite one. It's definitely unlike any other film you'll ever see in your entire life, which I would argue most of Lars von Trier's movies are like that. Um, I think only he comes up with these incredibly just horrific and tragic storylines that just really tear at your heartstrings, which, I mean, I don't know. I don't know that there's anything really bad about that. The movies are just designed to make you think and make you feel. So... Antichrist starts with uh, the prologue. And the prologue is filmed in black and white and in slow motion. So that's really creative. Um, He and she 
our two main characters are a married couple and they're in the shower and they begin to have sex there's snow falling outside and we see a window open on its own on like a higher floor of they live in an apartment building so um i want to say it's like the very least it's like the third floor i couldn't really get a good view of their apartment from the exterior but this window opens and while he and she are having sex we see that they have a small child whose name is nick and he's still sleeping in a crib where the window is that we've been shown there's a desk in front of it with three like i don't want to call them toy soldiers because they're like metal they're like almost like little tiny statues of soldiers and underneath each of them they it says pain grief and despair as the sexual intercourse between he and she intensifies their child nick climbs out of his crib on his own opens his baby gate that blocks him from the rest of the apartment walks past his parents bedroom moves a chair so that he's able to step onto the desk that's in front of the open window climbs onto the desk vis-a-vis the chair and into the window opening so when he's in the window opening he's holding a, a toy like a doll and attached to this doll is a balloon filled with helium and so the toy starts to kind of float outside of the window into the snow and when he goes to catch it from rising right he wants to catch his toy he falls from the window to his his death and this occurs while she is having um an orgasm so the climax of this prologue and the climax of this sexual encounter occur simultaneously so pretty epic prologue if you ask me on to chapter one grief he and she attend the funeral of their son and he looks sad like kind of crying maybe um she shows no emotions at all except she passes out like while the the casket is being moved for burial and um everyone gathers around her very quickly obviously and she ends up in the hospital so when she's in the hospital he brings her flowers and asks how she's doing but she's like okay we just talked about how i was feeling like why are we talking about again and he's like well you've that was yesterday by the way and you've been in here for a month so you know i'm bound to ask you once or twice for fuck's sake And it's revealed to us that she's been in this hospital for a month suffering from atypical grief. And he says that he spoke to her doctor. And the doctor, I guess, he it's under his um, opinion that the doctor has been giving his wife too much medication. And she so kindly reminds him that he is not a doctor himself. And he says, well... I may not be, but there's nothing about your grief that's atypical. So everything you're feeling is normal. She starts to blame herself, asking herself, you know, why did this happen? Saying she could have stopped their child from falling from the window because 
she knew that sometimes Nick would get up out of bed in the middle of the night and walk around and was capable of opening the baby gate on his own. And he provides some comfort to her. Um, what else can you really do at that point, right? You're, you're a married couple grieving over the loss of your child. Eventually, he meddles with the doctor and gets the doctor to agree to let her go home. He's a therapist, and so the doctor did advise her, um, hey, not a good idea to let your therapist husband make you his patient because, you know, there's some ethics around that that might need to be considered, but he convinces her anyway. Um, whether it's by her genuinely, like, in a way thinking that he might actually be able to help or whether it's in the sense that she doesn't have the energy to fight it. So she's like, whatever, just, I don't even care. Just do it. So when they get back home, a letter from the medical examiner's office arrives and he hides it in his coat pocket so that she won't see it. Cause she's definitely not in a position to see it. And the first thing she does when she gets home is flush all of her meds down the toilet and cry in Nick's room and says that she wants to die too, which I think that that's probably pretty normal. He tells her he's not going to let her die and that her grief will get better, but it will also change and get worse before that relief happens. So in bed, she tells him that he's always been distant from her and the child and uses the previous summer as an example. So she says like last summer, you know, was the last summer of our son's life and you weren't interested in spending time with either of us. And that she also tells him that she knows that she was, she knows that he was never interested in her until now. So now that she's a problem that needs fixing, essentially he's taken an interest to her. And he tells her that he understood that last summer, um, she had asked for peace to write her thesis in their cabin in the woods. And she admits to him that she never finished it because it didn't seem as important to her when she was there. She has a vision of herself sweating and pale in a dark wooded area. We don't really get much more context than that. So it's a little confusing, but it will make sense later. Back in bed, she's shaking and out of breath. And when he finds her and helps her, um, to like calm down. He basically wants to help her practice breathing and calms her down by having her imagine herself sitting in a field of flowers with their son, Nick, as a, maybe a way to just be close to him again. He tells her that right now she's in the anxiety phase, but she is not sold on that idea. She's like, I don't know, this is really physical and much more dangerous than anxiety. And he reminds her that anxiety is actually a pretty physical sensation, so he's not wholly wrong. She then aggressively really tries to have sex with him, but he tells her to never screw her therapist and tries to get her to do the breathing thing again. Later, while she showers, he tells her that exposure is the only thing that's going to help, and he has her make a list of things that she's afraid of, but she isn't really afraid of anything, she says. She's just kind of, like, afraid in general. After that, she has a panic attack in the bathroom, 
And she starts to bang her head against the toilet bowl until she bleeds, which looks incredibly painful. He goes to get her and she, instead of being grateful for his help or, you know, continuing to cry, she pulls down his underwear um, while he's trying to calm her down. And then they proceed to have sex. So there's a lot of sex in this movie, guys. I'm sorry. He recognizes that the sex is obviously not helpful, but she's finally calm. So he kind of is like, okay, well, if that's what it took, then I guess that's fine. He asks her if she cannot tell what she's afraid of, maybe she could tell where she is the most afraid of being or where she feels the most exposed. And she says that that place for her would be in the woods. And he says that's super weird because the one place that you always wanted to go was the woods. And specifically, she said she's afraid of the garden around Eden. But it's not at the top of her list. It's just the only one she can think of right now. So Eden is um, the place where they have their cabin, is what they refer to this place as. So then she tries to have sex with him again, but she hurts him by like cutting his nipple or biting his nipple too hard or something. So that ends up not happening. So the next day they set off on the train to Eden and he tells her to start focusing on her expectations for this exposure. So he wants to try exposure therapy to get her to not be afraid of the woods. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, what the fuck does the woods and exposure therapy have to do with their kid? I don't know. If I could answer that question, I would. Because I have no fucking idea what this has to do with absolutely anything at all. She's afraid of the woods after the loss of her child. Okay, fine. But if I'm grieving a child, a loss of a child, I don't know where the exposure to the woods plays in. So we're just gonna, we're not gonna try to think too hard about that because that might reveal like a plot hole of some kind. So we're just gonna skip that. And we're gonna enjoy the rest of this episode. Okay. Glad we're on the same page. So when she starts focusing on her expectations for this trip, she kind of gets put into like a trance like state like a small type of hypnosis and she explains that she sees herself walking across a bridge into the woods and that there are no birds making any sounds and the water is running in the stream but it's silent she says she's on the defense and she sees a tree with a thick trunk and that the tree is rotting and it has its own personality but the way she describes it is kind of sinister sounding in this vision, she's heading to the cabin, to Eden, and he tells her not to go inside. So like a guided meditation. He's telling her not to go inside, but to imagine herself lying down on the grass instead, which she describes as very green. He asks her to melt into the green and essentially become one with it, to become one with the grass. And she does this successfully, like she does a good job. So after they get off the train, they start their hike to their cabin, to Eden. And at a certain point, she has to stop because she says that the ground is burning. Okay. He's like, the ground is absolutely not burning. She takes off her shoe and sock. And from what it looks like to the viewer, it just looks like she has a really big blister on her foot, which like does kind of feel like fire. So, I mean, I, I'm not going to sit here and say that she's not valid for thinking that. 
later along their path she wants to lie down in the grass she's tired she's fatigued like this is a whole lot to do and to ask of somebody who's been depressed and in bed for a month in the hospital so while she sleeps he ventures on a short little way and sees a doe through the greenery and he slowly approaches it and when he gets close enough to it and it turns away he sees that it has a dead stillborn and like almost rotting fawn that's like halfway hanging out of its body so like it died in the birth canal and it's just hanging out in there I don't know that that's healthy for the animal um but that is the that is what we're shown chapter two pain after she wakes up from this nap they walk toward the bridge that she imagined in her hypnosis and is afraid to cross it and she does eventually but very slowly and when they finally arrive at their cabin she lays in bed and falls asleep again very tired you're asking a lot of a depressed person give her some fucking space he later in the cabin finds photos of nick and some of nick and her from the previous summer at the cabin and flips through them and there's this one really haunting picture of like a selfie of her and nick together and her face is just totally blank Like, there's no expression on it at all. It's totally blank. She's just not, doesn't care. Not happy. Everything's, you know, everything is empty and cold. Okay. So he later goes to sleep. And in the middle of the night, they both wake up because there's a shit ton of acorns falling from these trees onto the metal roof of their cabin. And I don't know about you, but that's enough to scare the shit out of anybody. So... He freaks out and she's like, oh God, dude, it's just the acorns. Go back to sleep. As you do, right? So the next morning he wakes up and his hand had been like hanging out of the window a whole whole night. And so um, he has a bunch of ticks on his hand. So that's gross and also um, horrifying. So he pulls all these ticks that are now swollen out of his hand and goes on his merry way. So he sets up an exercise for her. Remember, this is an exposure thing. So he sets up an exercise for her by carrying some like large stones and laying them out because she's afraid to touch the grass. So he carries her from the front porch of the cabin onto the stone so she doesn't have to touch the grass and gets her to step off of the grass while breathing. And she takes like, I don't know, maybe like four or five steps and she takes them and she breathes and she makes it and she's okay. While she's doing it though, she has a vision of herself walking through the dark woods barefoot and eventually she has to sit down like she she's tired she's proud of herself but it took a lot out of her and um she breaks down into tears after completing this little exercise and as soon as she stops crying because you know when you stop and then nature says i'll give you something to cry about a baby bird falls from a tree and is immediately eaten by ants it dies on impact it gets eaten by bugs And then a hawk swoops in and takes it from there. So she sees that and she cries and she tells him how much she misses their son. And she mentions that she's actually been afraid of the cabin before. And when she became afraid is when she stopped writing her thesis. 
So she recalls what happened. She says the last time she was afraid, she heard a sound. So there's a flashback given to us of her at the kitchen table working on her thesis of genocide, which is spelled G-Y-N-O-C-I-D-E. And upon further examination, um, I believe this is supposed to be like gender side, which I will talk about after. And while she's working on this thesis, she hears her son crying outside. So she runs looking everywhere. Like she can't find where he is or where this crying is coming from. She even runs all the way to the bridge and back. And she runs back to the cabin and finds their son is inside of like the cabin storage area, like a separate little entrance for storage built into the cabin. And he's in there playing on the floor, but he's not crying. But whatever she's hearing and this crying and screaming, like, she can't figure out where it's coming from. And eventually it stops. So that's what scared her. So he tells her, you tied this emotional event of not knowing where our son was. And that scared you, you know, to Eden. And that's why you're afraid of it. So then she just like attacks him. Like she's just angry and pissed and she just attacks him. And she's like, you know what? You should never have come here. She later explains when the acorns are falling again that she was able to hear all of the things that she could never hear before, which was the cry of all the things that are to die. She says that nature is Satan's church. And on the same piece of paper, he wrote down her initial fear of nature in the woods. He writes down Satan at the very top and um, he later crosses it out because he's like, eh, I don't know. Could be, maybe not, probably not. Going to get rid of it. While she's sleeping, he finds a paper that he looks at that sends him into sort of a trance. And in this little trance vision he's having, he is imagining himself outside of the cabin in the garden with acorns falling all around him. I don't know about you. I've never been in a situation where there's been a bunch of acorns falling like that. I do think that would scare the ever-living shit out of me. Like, how do you even try to reconcile something like that? I mean, I guess you don't. So, the next morning, she comes outside, willingly, on her own. And she sits with him on the, te- on the porch steps of the cabin. And she says that she slept well, and that she's happy that he is there with her, and that she loves him. So she gets up and she willingly walks into the woods on her own and he follows and she stops by a fox den and reaches into it. And she's like, this is me proving to you that I am well and cured and I'm not afraid. And he doesn't really seem happy to hear this. Um, I think because he like has no idea what the fuck that's supposed to prove. So whenever she doesn't get the reaction out of him that she wants, he walks away or she walks away angrily and he stands there and just like watches to see where she's going. In the greenery shrubbery nearby, he sees that there's like some movement. So he approaches this movement and he finds a fox, which is disemboweling itself. And the fox says, chaos reigns. Now, do foxes speak? Don't think so. Why did the deer not speak? I don't know. 
I don't know what we can do about that. I don't think there's anything to reconcile here. I think we just take it for what it is. Chapter three, despair, and then in parentheses, genocide. It starts to rain, and he makes his way back to the cabin to find her in bed. She's asleep. And in the ceiling, he sees like a, a latch to the attic. So he goes out to get a ladder so that he can explore what, you know, appears to be nothing more than an attic. But in the attic, he finds printed images of women being hanged and murder and war and women being tortured along with her books regarding her thesis, which include any number of things, but mostly revolve around the lives of women and women being evil and, you know, men being out to get women and blah, blah, blah. So he finds her handwritten notebooks, which contain her thesis, like literature review at the start. But as he continues to turn the pages, the writing becomes completely incoherent and scribbled. And then a tree falls down outside. So that's kind of scary. So maybe he wasn't supposed to find these things and nature is like, yo, what the fuck? He later sits with her and tries to do another exercise, which includes role-playing to encourage rational thinking. I have actually done this exercise before. Um, It works pretty well. For me, anyway. So he is pretending to be nature and all of the things that she fears. And she is just being herself. So as nature, he tells her that all he wants to do is to hurt her as much as he can by killing her. He is the kind of nature that is within, the kind that wants to harm women, implying that it's inherent to the lives of men to, like, harm women. Or it's, it's, it's inherent to nature to harm women. And she says that she used to be very interested in that type of nature, so much so that she tried to write a thesis about it, but to not doubt Eden or the powers within it. She says that in her research that she has uncovered that nature controls women's bodies and that women do not control their own bodies. Which I found to be very interesting because I do firmly feel like I am in control of my own body most of the time. Almost 100%. There's always the occasional arm flail when you're sleeping that you don't realize it happens, but other than that, I feel like I'm good to go. So she admits that she has accepted her research as proof that women are evil rather than studying the evil things that were done to women. So he kind of freaks the fuck out on her because he's like, what are you talking about? Are you actually psychotic? Like, what are you even saying? You're saying that these women deserved these things? I mean, these are like cruel actions that were, were, these were things that harmed women. Like, what are you talking about? And she kind of doesn't really seem to understand that, you know, what she's saying actually sounds insane. So um, they have a, a little a little spat about that, if you will. So during sex later, she asks him to hit her until it hurts. And he's like, uh, no, that's a negative ghostwriter. I'm not doing that. Um, she starts to sob because he won't. And she's like, I can't take this anymore. Like, if you, if you don't hit me, then you don't love me. And he pushes her away, and he's like, well, maybe I don't fucking love you after all. Like, why, why would I do this to you? Like, I'm not going to do this. 
So she runs out of the cabin, butt-ass naked, to the rotting large tree. And begins to masturbate herself until he finds her, slaps her straight across the face, and um, they begin to have sex again. Folks, this is not an endorsement to slap whoever you feel like whenever you're having a sexual encounter with them. Please do not do that. If they give you consent to do so, please proceed. But I do just for whatever reason feel like that's really important to say. So, um, after that, they begin to have sex again. And while they're having sex, she comments on a group of sisters that she read from her texts that could start a hailstorm. And I know what you're thinking, like, we all think of hailstorms during intercourse. I mean, I don't know what else there is to think about. So, a close-up shot that zooms out, which is coincidentally the cover of the film, shows them having sex. And as it continues to zoom out, the tree is shown completely entangled with limbs and, like, you know, hands, arms, legs, feet of things that are intertwined into the the trunk. So that's, you know, that's nice. He addresses her obsession later with this concept of evil. And he just is like, dude, you got to trust me. Like, I I, I can't do this. Like, this is nuts. And she kind of is like, yeah, well, you know, sometimes, like, I forget. Like, I forget to be rational, I suppose. I, I, I don't, I don't know. Your guess is as good as mine. And um, she finds the copy of the autopsy report from the medical examiner in his coat pocket. And so he says, the only thing noted in the report of like concern is there is an abnormality of the foot. So he finds the photos he had earlier viewed of their son from the previous summer, which shows their son, Nick, playing on the front porch wearing two right shoes instead of one right and one left. So essentially on his left shoe, or left, his left foot, excuse me, he's wearing a right shoe. So like it doesn't fit his feet. She comments that that's really strange. Hmm, so weird. So he goes out into the storage area of the cabin and reviews the rest of the photos, which all show that their son is wearing two right shoes. Which is so fucked, because how bad would that hurt? Oh my god, over time? Like, I can't even imagine. That would hurt so fucking bad. So a flashback shows her putting the shoes on their son in the garden and him crying. Because, you know, it hurts. And um, looking back at his little paper where he's writing down all of her fears, he writes at the very top, uh, me. And as he does that, she jumps in from the back, attacks him. She's shouting at him. You're leaving me. I can't believe you would do this. You're such a bastard. Like, why would you do this? And she, again, is very aggressive and... I'm, this is my interpretation of what played out in this scene. I, it, it 100% does not appear to be a consexu- consensual sexual encounter. She begins to assault him. She removes his pants. She gets on top of him in an effort to have sex with him. 
It's very graphic. And um, he's like, dude, I love you. Like, don't do this to me. Like, this is so fucked. Like, please stop. And she's like, I don't believe you. I do not believe you. So she gets up. She takes a piece of wood and she hits his penis with it so hard that he passes out. The assault doesn't end because in his unconscious state, she strokes his penis to the point of ejaculation in which he ejaculates blood. So he's still unconscious at this point. And then she takes a wrench from a toolbox. She removes a grindstone from its like, you know, milling machine and drills it into his calf by first drilling a hole into the leg and then securing it so that he can't walk. She tosses the wrench outside. That's important later. Guess she loses it. So when he wakes up and he's panicked as shit, as you would be, he um, he can't undo the thing from his leg. Like, he, he can't do it. So he's like, okay, that was plan A, but that's not going to work, so we got to go plan B. So plan B is that he's going to crawl away. Where is he going? He's not sure, but he inevitably, um, he settles on that fox bro that they had already seen earlier. So he's trying to hide from her. So now that he's gone, she's super pissed because he escaped. So she's running around trying to find him, screaming at him, yelling at him. I can't believe you would do this. You're such a fucking bastard. Like you're leaving me. I thought you loved me. It was supposed to be just us. You know, all of these things. A little bit of uh, if I can't have you, no one else, no one else will either, right? Yeah. So that's what's playing out here. So she's pissed. So he's inside of this burrow. Thankfully, there were no foxes in there. Okay. But when he gets in there, he hears and tampers with this crow that's like half alive, half dead, and it starts to squawk. So, you know, number one rule of warfare, you know, don't reveal your true location. So that that's fucked. So, you know, she's like, oh, I hear something. Must be him. So she hears the bird and then he tries to kill it and like half bury it or whatever, but she still finds him anyway. So it didn't really matter. And she tries to pull him out of the burrow, but then she just becomes so frustrated that she can't like pull him out that she takes a shovel and hits his feet until a large stone falls in front of the opening and like blocks him from getting out and it blocks her from getting in. So it's like a half grave situation. And then she kind of feels bad. So she like starts, she takes a shovel and she starts digging on top of the, um, the burrow. Cause you know, it's kind of like on a ledge. And, um, when she starts to do that, she's trying to get him out. So she's trying to go in from the top to like get him out. She feels bad, whatever. Chapter four, the three beggars. It's right about now. I'm sure you're thinking, dear listener, how can this possibly get any worse? Well, I'll tell you. So, um, now she can't find the wrench that she used to secure the grindstone to his leg. And, you know, she feels really bad right now. So like, she really wants to find this wrench because she wants to remove it from his leg because I don't know, like having it in for like a couple hours was punishment enough for this guy. And she wants to make sure that it is gone. So, um, because she can't find it, she instead 
works with him to like pull him out of the burrow and brings him back to the cabin. So that when he gets there, she's like, when the three beggars arrive, somebody's going to die. Somebody has to die. And with the state that he's in already, um, we are to infer that it will be him to die and she's going to leave him there. She says, a crying woman is a scheming woman. She's crying over his body while she says this. I think there's quite a bit of truth to that. Um, so she kisses him. And this is where, this is where I, I start to get a little lost. Well, sorry. This is where things um, became so like outrageous to me that I like lost where I was in the story because I'm like, what even, this is not even about this kid anymore. This is just, I have no idea what we're doing right now. So she, she, she gets some scissors and she, she, she cuts off her clitoris. She just cuts it off. She's done with it. She doesn't want it anymore, I guess. And she, she, she wants it, she wants it taken off. So then the three beggars show up and, um, you know, the beggars are the crow, the doe, and the fox, all of which he has already encountered and we at the audience have also seen throughout the film and throughout their time in the, in the forest, in the wilderness. And then a hailstorm begins. So she talks about the hailstorm during sex, and then there actually is a hailstorm later. So that's that's some nice resolution, I think, for us all. So then he makes his way back outside, ultimately, where um, he finds the wrench, actually. Like, he, he finds it. It's under the floorboards of the cabin. And so she attacks him with some scissors, the same ones that she used to cut off her, her clitoris. And he, man he manages to unbolt the grindstone, but it doesn't end happily because um, he then is so pissed, as we all might be, that he strangles her to death. So after the strangulation, he burns her body. I mean, I don't know what else there is to say about that. Um, He's pissed. And then he's kind of limping. I don't even know how he can walk at this point, to be real with you. Like, I don't understand that part either, but um, he can. So he's walking and he eats some berries. And, um, and as he looks on, he sees, you know, a really illuminating, super bright light um, and watches, like, hundreds and hundreds of women who are wearing like old-timey clothes like um antiquated clothing and they're walking past him and like climbing up this hill in like groups and swarms and it's just like hundreds and hundreds of them and they don't really have like faces and um like they do but their faces are blurred which i guess is to imply that they're spiritual obviously and they just like walk to towards him and past him and that's that's the movie so it's a heavy one i'm not gonna lie to you it's definitely one of those movies where 
you have to be in a certain mindset to watch. So, um, yeah, it leaves me a little speechless sometimes that this this is a real thing that I've seen not like once or twice, but like three times. And um, like I mentioned at the beginning, this is the first installment of the Depression trilogy. Lars von Trier likes to make movies and trilogies with similar like thematic elements overall. And he wrote this after coming out like a horrible, terrible bout of depression, during which he was actually convinced that he would never be able to direct another movie ever again. Like he was convinced that like that was it. He wasn't gonna direct anymore. It was too much, depression was too much, and like sometimes life feels like too much, you know? But looking into the movie a little deeper, there's a lot of things at play. And depression is certainly one of them, but there's there's a lot of things at play here. So let's start with the child's death. Okay. So we learn later in the movie that she thinks that women are evil. Not that evil is done to women, but that women are the evil ones. And that's how she feels. Or that's how she thinks she feels anyway. So, at first glance, she indirectly caused her child's death because there's a fucking helium-filled balloon in an unlocked window. And, you know, she knew that he could climb out of the crib on his own and he could walk around the house on his own. Also, parents out there, are you supposed to be in a crib still? If you can, like, walk... Like, I don't know. I've not ever heard of that, I don't think. Um, but, like, at what point do you, like, stop sleeping in the crib? Somebody let me know, please. So she knew he could do that. And she knew he could open the baby gate. And, you know, it's like, okay, like, if you didn't care about your son's safety, like, you didn't fucking care about it. Like, okay. So there, there could be some implied evilness in that. But later in the film, there's another flashback of the of the the beginning scene, the intro scene, where we see that she actually notices that he's up walking around and walks to the window and sees him fall. And she doesn't she doesn't really care. Now the reason I didn't really mention this is because in the first time that the opening sequence is shown we see that Nick looks into the bedroom at his parents. But the second time we see it, he actually doesn't look into the bedroom at all, and she looks at Nick as he's walking. And the difference is so subtle that you almost won't catch it. And I will admit, the first two times I watched this movie, I didn't catch it either. And so... That in and of itself shows that, like, she was kind of, she was just willing to let it happen. Like, she wasn't willing to stop having sex. She wasn't willing to forego her own orgasm or self, you know, fulfillment or gratification to save her son. She just didn't care that much. But she definitely feels, like, some guilt about it, right? Because um, she ends up in the hospital for a month. Like, she collapses at the funeral of their own fucking kid. I mean, she clearly feels some type of way about it. She can't possibly think that she's so evil that, like, 
she would be willing to allow this to happen and like not feel any type of way about it at all. So when we learn that the hospital has diagnosed her with atypical grief, which like implying that her grief is not that of a, of the normal or average person. I'm not initially sure how I feel about that because I personally would imagine that the loss of a child is probably like the worst possible type of loss that can happen to a person. I don't even have any way of like conceptualizing like what that would feel like. But essentially from what I gather from Wikipedia is that this type of grief is just like really prolonged, far more prolonged than any other type of grief. And um, it can last for like up to a year or longer, depending on how severe it's gotten. And symptoms of it include nihilistic views of the world, such as, you know, life being worth nothing and not worth living and meaning nothing. So someone without, someone who's truly evil wouldn't feel that type of guilt and wouldn't feel that type of sorrow, I don't think. So it's almost as if she's like at odds with her own perceptions of how her studies of these women went. I do want to take a quick second to point out that the scene in which Nick falls out of the window is also um, referenced in Nymphomaniac later, where the mother of the story, Nymphomaniac, also played by Charlotte Gainsbourg, puts her own sexual desires over the well-being of her child again. And, you know, he and their child in that film ends up not dying, but um, it's a little callback to this movie. Calling the cabin Eden and not giving the characters names is, uh, I think, satire or sarcastic because there's nothing to feel safe about there (laughs) Um, and nothing good happens when they are there. So they go to this place kind of hoping it's going to be like their their salvation, right? Like it's going to be the thing that saves them. It's going to be the thing that rekindles their marriage. It's going to be the thing that helps her in her her grief journey. But no... Nothing good happens to either party, and there's no salvation for anybody else. So, it's a nice little play on the Bible, being that the cabin's name, or cabin's, like, place is called Eden. Um, And again, that the two characters are just unnamed. It's, like, referring to the idea that they are, like, the first two people to be here, or to, like, take on this kind of challenge together, or maybe the first two people to have this kind of punishment. And perhaps their quote-unquote God is punishing them for the death of their child, by making them be here and it not being good because when we think about nature we think about like a healing place we think about we think about things that are good natural things it's healing it's restorative it's calming none of that shit is here and misery loves company so when she thinks that he's leaving after she genitally mutilated him and puts a, a millstone or a grindstone through his leg She literally can't even bear the thought of being alone and hunts him down in an attempt to get him to stay with her, which just shows and illustrates what grief can really do to you, right? I mean, it's like, I guess I should say despair. Um, Like, it's so intense, so emotional, so out of this worldly feeling that she'd be willing to mutilate his genitals and her own in an attempt to rid them both of the thing that they use to control one another. I firmly believe in this movie, like sex 
is used as a mechanism for control by both parties. She uses sex to have some control over her life, given that she is responsible for the death of her son. Like, she, um, she really grapples with that guilt. And in order to not really focus on that so much, she... She, she can't control her thoughts. She can't control how she feels. But she can control whether or not she wants to have sex. And so she uses sex as a way to do that. And then she's... She's also, like... Using sex in a way to preserve her womanhood, in a sense. Um, I almost feel like... And this is my interpretation, right? Like, no one's ever come out and say it, said it. Because Lars von Trier has not ever come out and said, like, this is what this movie is about. Have a good day. Because he's not going to do that. But um, whenever she uses sex, it almost feels like a way for her to remember the way that she felt when she was orgasming and watching her son fall from a window. It's like... She's so fucking sick, okay, that she, like, wants to relive that feeling over and over and over again, which could lead us to believe that women are truly evil, or in this story they are, essentially, because she's so heartless that she wants to feel it again. And that's what she was doing when that thing occurred. So he, on the other hand, I think, uses sex as a way to keep her trust, right? He's giving in to her aggressive, sadomasochistic sexual desires to keep her trusting him so that he can continue to have control over her in a way that allows him access to her mind under the watch of his therapy. He is so... He's so into the idea of being her therapist. I feel like any other person married to a therapist would be like, oh my God, we got to get you a therapist. Let me call so-and-so. No, no, no. This guy was like, I got you. I got you, babe. No worries. I'll be your own therapist. It's not a big deal. When we think about his control, though, I, I can almost see his control in two ways. I see his control over her vis-a-vis therapy as both a way of exploring Like, he wants to go back to Eden for this exposure. And he wants to uncover what unfolded that previous summer. He wants to know what happened to her and and Nick during that summer that maybe could have gotten them to this, this, into this, this position. And, like, he wants to figure out, like, how did we get here? How did this happen? What happened here that scares you so bad that, you know made this occur okay that's fine but i also see it as a way for him to be like okay you don't have anything else to focus on anymore because we don't have a kid anymore so i've always been kind of distant because i think you're really scary okay but in order to keep you under my watch and under my control i'm gonna make you do these things and force you to believe me that it's working and that will keep you around So it's twofold. They both want to control one another. It's very sticky. Looking to the three beggars. Okay. 
let's talk about what the Three Beggars story is. In a nutshell, it's a Serbian fable, tale, whatever you want to call it. It's basically the story of a man who's approached by three beggars, and he's going to sick the dogs on him, okay? Like, he doesn't want them here. He wants them gone. And the daughter of this household is like, please, Dad, don't, don't kill these guys, blah, blah, blah. So he lets these guys stay in, like, a farmhouse that they have on their property. And eventually, the father gets offered money in exchange for a child, like, prosperity in exchange for the child. So the father throws the newborn baby, a newborn child, like, off of a cliff, in exchange for financial prosperity. Okay. Well, that fucking sucks and is sad as shit. So we can infer that in Antichrist, the mother allows the death of her young child. Like, maybe she couldn't do it herself. Maybe she could not personally pick him up and throw him outside. But she would set up a situation in order to allow him to fall to his death inadvertently so that she didn't have to really do it herself. And so... Maybe she allowed this to happen after having read the story of the three beggars in exchange for some kind of positive outcome in her life, whatever it is, like financial prosperity or happiness or whatever, based on the readings that she had done in her research for her thesis that she never ended up finishing. And that's why whenever she's like, She's, she's using sex so often. It's like almost like a way for her to like have control over her life because all she's doing is waiting for this reward from these, these otherworldly powers, these other witches, these other women of the spiritual realm to reward her for letting her child die. And when that doesn't come immediately, she's like, oh, fuck, what did I do? Did I really let my kid die? And nothing good has happened to me so far. Like, I feel sad. I feel tired. I feel angry. I hate my husband. Like, nothing's right. I thought that something good was going to come from this. And nothing good is happening. So what have I done? That's my read on it. So what do these animals symbolize that we're looking at as the three beggars? Well, I'm so glad you asked. I will link these in the um, show notes. But according to allthingsfoxes.com, foxes are seen as cunning and tricky, which is demonstrated by her, literally in the movie, because she wakes up one day and she's like, oh, I'm cured, I'm healthy, blah, blah, blah. But there's nothing fucking cured and healthy about that lady. She's psychotic. Okay? She has other plans. She's, She's not okay. Mentally, we know nothing is good or healthy about this woman, but she puts on a good show. Tricky. Crows from birdfact.com. Crows most commonly symbolize death, which is evident later in the film. um, Because after he tries to kill the crow that he finds, um, and then she tells him that when the three beggars show up, that somebody's going to have to die. Um, She just thinks it's going to be him (laughs) up until the end when, you know, he strangles her and sets her body on fire. So that's the death. Oh, and also like their son, obviously. And then according to millersguild.com, the deer is seen as a calm and comforting symbol, typically. It's also the first animal that he sees. He sees that doe with the fawn that's stillborn, like half hanging out. 
So initially he sees it and he's like lulled into a false sense of security. He's like, oh, what a pretty doe. And then when it turns around, he's shocked to find out that this doe does not actually represent the tranquility that is usual of nature. And so he gets this kind of weird, clear foreshadowing, like straight up clarity of like what's about to come. Like on the exterior, everything looks great and wonderful. And when you're in it, it is not fucking okay. Everything is bad. (laughs) Nothing is good. A quick note on um, her comment regarding nature being Satan's church. I don't, like, disagree with that. I mean, I think it's, um, like, an interesting way to say, like, yo, some shit in nature really be fucked up like that. Like, it's really not good a lot of the time, and... This is kind of where things come to die. This is where things come to live and die. There's natural hierarchies. There's food chains. There's shit that happens that's bad, like natural disasters and animals killing other animals. And and everything in this movie is really rather animalistic. Like, especially the sex is, like, far more animalistic than maybe it's ever been portrayed in any other film that I've seen. And so it only makes sense for the two of them to be in nature in this movie. And when they get there, that's when, you know, shit really hits the fan. Shit really turns into, like, predator and prey. Who's the predator all the time? Who's the prey all the time? Well, it changes constantly back and forth. And sometimes she's, you know, hunting him. And other times he's trying to manipulate her in such a way to get her to be his prey. It's constantly going on. It's a constant battle. And it's all very animalistic in nature. And I think that also plays and helps with the fact that they don't have names, like the characters don't have names. It's almost easier to detach ourselves from these characters because they are being expressed as, like, animals in in Kingdom Animalia rather than just, you know, the species of human. Which I think is really interesting. The other thing I want to touch on is the genital mutilation, which in turn leads me to my discussion on gender side. So gender side is like the systemic murder of a gender. Um, And it's like about referring to assaults against people because of their gender so if they're women you know against women against or against men um and that's where like we get the term genocide g-y-n genocide and femicide is like violence against women which is what she was studying now i think what's really powerful in this movie about the genital mutilation sequence is that it doesn't happen in the same um, scene. So at first, she takes it upon herself to hit his penis with a block of wood to the point where it ejaculates blood. So she's mutilated his genitals. Okay, she's taken away his ability to be sexually gratified. Okay, that's horrible. Later, notice that he does not mutilate her genitals she mutilates her own she cuts her clitoris with scissors in what i interpret to be her punishing herself 
for the evil that lives within her, the evil that she firmly believes that she has in her body just for being a woman. And she has now also taken away her sense or her um, organ that is used for sexual gratification of herself. Now, is she doing that as a punishment for herself because she had already mutilated her husband's genitals? I don't think so. I think this is a mechanism, storytelling mean by which to show that she ultimately is the one in control in this movie. He never really is. He thinks he is, and like we are kind of shown that he might be at certain times, but she is the one who is always in control. And that's why it sometimes bothers me when I read that um, some people's interpretation of this is that it's, it's a misogynistic film. Him killing her in the end doesn't really make it a misogynistic film. I think that you need to look a lot deeper than that. Especially when she's the one who holds the cards the whole time. She was the one who has been doing all these things and, and this witchcraft and all of this research that's led her to these conclusions and led her to make these choices in her life. So really, it's, it's, it's not... I, I don't find it to be misogynistic in nature. But ultimately, I think more broadly, there's two ways to really look at this film. And the one is... The complete and utter dysfunction of a marriage that has no business being a marriage anymore that by and far needs to be just dissolved. Okay, like they don't need to be married anymore. It's not working out. And in a sense, this film just kind of shows the battle between evil and evil. We have two people who are so concerned with hating one another that they're not spending any time talking about their son and his death. They don't do anything to memorialize him. They don't really talk. He doesn't even show any emotions regarding their son. So that's just, in my opinion, two evil people. The second way to look at this is to show that grief depression, despair, fear. These are all natural things to feel, especially after a loss. These are all natural things to feel. These are all natural um, occurrences in the life of a person. It's okay. This, this film just illustrates those things to like the greatest extent, right? It, it really like puts a lot of emphasis on it and pressure on it and kind of makes us look through it in a lens that we maybe otherwise wouldn't look through. When we think about depression, I mean, we know what depression is. But this really shows what depression would look like and play out like and how it can make people, it can make people turn on one another. You know, it's, it's, um, it's a very all-consuming illness to suffer from. I have empathy for people that do. So those are my thoughts. Um, again, I love Lars von Trier's movies. And um, if you like this film, I would really suggest that you watch Melancholia and um, then Nymphomaniac Part 1 and 2 after. I love Melancholia. I love Kristen Dunst. And Charlotte Gainsbourg, of course, is in that movie as well. And she's in Nymphomaniac. 
Um, before we wrap up, I just have to say you can find this podcast on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, and Pocket Casts. If you enjoyed the show, it would mean the world to me if you left me a five-star review and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. For any questions, comments, concerns, suggestions, requests, you can email me at finalgirlon6 at gmail.com or you can message me at finalgirlon6 on Instagram. So thank you so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed the show. I will talk to you guys in two weeks. Never forget that I'm 6th Avenue's very own final girl. Bye.